Welcome back to The Chosen Journey with Steve Carsey, and we are on to chapter 12. Steve is going no hat today. I'm going with my shirt. Steve, I don't know what happened to your face there. <laughs> That's why I don't know either. It just, it just came back from the printers like that, and I said, uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be like Despicable Me, like the Minions, but uh, <laughs> you have one eye on this shirt, buddy. You just got to go with it. That's what it is. But it does match well with the uh, Brewer's Yellow. It does. It's uh, a little uh, golden blue, uh, not quite as dark blue as what the, the brew crew is, but, uh, you know, it, it, it goes well. I like the yellow. You know, when I wear yellow, it's like mellow yellow. I'm feeling good, you know, relaxed. And that's probably why they put them in the jerseys also, you know, to give a nice calm feel to it. It is a nice calm yoga feel to the yellow. So that being said, we were saying that, uh, you know, we have a game plan when we're going to do these chapters and of course things change and then they change back. So we, what we were going to do originally, we're going to go with it. So our original plan is sticking to it. Uh, we were going to have a surprise as far as guests go, but I was telling Steve, buddy in baseball, you have some of the worst baseball friends known to man, but Steve was saying that in scheduling ball players, that's just baseball. It is. It, it, you, you'd be really surprised. Uh, baseball players are real diligent on time when it has to do with baseball and when to be at the field and where to be on the field or in the cage or something like that. But when you get them away from the field, things kind of just go a little bit haywire. They're kind of on their own program. There's a lot of things going on in their life off the field. And uh, they're really hard to pin down, to be quite honest with you especially when they're different stages of their careers. And what I told Steve, he knows, he knows one of the guests that are coming. We have two people confirmed. One, we know who he is. One, we do not know. I promised him this is going to be an, a very exciting guest who's taken an amazing journey and it's going to blow everybody away. And I know he will not disappoint. It is not Derek Jeter. It is not Ricky Henderson. I do not have <laughs> Jesus-like powers yet to bring on this level of people, but it's pretty darn close in my mind as far as where they're going. So it's going to be pretty freaking exciting. Yeah. And, and I tried to guess you, you tried to kind of give me a hint, but you really want the first one to be a surprise, uh, not only to me, uh, but the people who listen and, uh, you know, want to hear more about not only our journey, my journey, uh, but the people we bring on what their journey is like. Uh, and maybe that can correlate or, uh, you know, be something that uh, people can gravitate to and, and see what would uh, potentially be similar to them. It's like my feeling, the way we're, th I kind of can see it now. And it's funny because I, I think of these things as we go along and I don't really see them that way, but then it comes to me as we're talking, but it's almost like a high school graduation reunion, you know, and you're like, Hey, how's life been for you since high school? You know, and it's kind of that kind of feeling. And, you know, when you had been together at that point, where you saw your life going, where your journey was going, where their life journey was going, and then it's amazing years later, and it could have gone a totally different way. And But you have that connection point because you knew each other at a certain point in your lives, and you never know where it's going to go. Life is a very, very funny way thing that way. It, it really is. I mean, you just kind of look at me and you, right? We talked back in... 10, 12 years ago about doing the book. And then we kind of lost track of each other. Then we reconnected. It's the same thing in baseball. Um, you play with guys, uh, guys get, you know, whether they're DFA'd or put on waivers and they go to a different club and then you kind of just see them when you play against them or guys retire and they kind of go their own way and, and do their own thing. Uh, you always have that connection with them. Whenever you see them, it's kind of like, Hey, you know, we're back in time and, we kind of just know each other and, and things just kind of click and pick up from that point. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a special thing. I, I think that's in any job, but especially baseball or, or in the sporting world is, uh, you know, you play with guys, you develop friendships with guys, but it's such a crazy business and a volatile business with guys moving, guys moving on, guys getting replaced, guys careers finishing uh, you know, you range from 21 to 35, 40 years old when you are on a 26 man staff and guys come and go, but you always develop those ties. You always develop those friendships. And uh, like I said, 
when you see each other, uh, even if it hasn't been for a few years, you you always uh, say hi and pick up where you left off and try to you know connect again in in a way where you 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 just see what the other person has been doing for for the period of time that you haven't spoke with them. I don't know about you, my friend, but if my like guardian angel went back to me in 2010 and played for him the 12 years that were going to follow. And this was going to be the year 2022. And you're going to be doing this docu-series with Steve Arce. And this is where you're going to be career-wise and life-wise. This is how you're going to look and this is how you're going to feel. Would you take this life knowing all the bad stuff that happened, all the good stuff? Are you happy with where it's at? And I would have said, hell yeah. No doubt about it. You know, no, it's one of the things we said in the previous episode. There's no regrets. Life, every little step you took, yeah, it may have taken you backwards, but at the end of the day, it brought you to where you are and it's worth the journey. And I can tell you, when you said that, I kind of reflected myself. If I could think of myself back then, I would have taken this in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, you're in a special place, right? I mean, that's kind of what, what you feel. And, uh, you know, your journey is taking you to the point where you're at right now. And if you can look back and say, I have no regrets on that, that, that that's a beautiful thing, uh, I think, for, for anybody. I think we all go back, uh, you know, and I do, and you always look at decisions that you make and you always say, what if I would have made this decision Would my have life have been different or what path would I have taken if I did this or I didn't do this. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, everybody's journey is special. Everybody makes those decisions in the moment and you never know what the future is going to hold. Right. Um, you know, we, we kind of just travel that journey and different paths pop up at different times in our lives. And uh, we take the path uh, sometimes of least resistance. And sometimes we take the path that is most challenging. And, and that's what shapes us as people. Uh, that's what shapes our lives. And, and, and that's what proves uh, everybody to be an individual. Well, for the next two chapters, it's going to be based on that jersey that's right behind you, those pinstripes. They're kicking butt. The Yankees are absolutely obliterating baseball this year. And because of that, we're going to actually follow the course we should have from chapter 11. So we're going to stay on course here. And in chapter 12, we're going to be finishing up on those 2002 New York Yankees. We had finished off the pitching staff. We're going to look at the coaches and we're going to be looking at the position players and a little something as I was marinating on it this afternoon before we came to be. That roster, I can describe it very easily in three different terms. You got Hall of Famers, near Hall of Famers, and Montreal Expos. I don't know what Cashman's obsession with the Montreal Expos was, but man, there were a lot of Expos in that room that year. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think he has an obsession with them, right? I, I just think that's, you know, where the chips fall. You know, he looks at the best players on the free agent market, uh, he looks at the best players that are going to complement his team with the players that he already has. Uh, and then he tries to put the pieces together. Sometimes it fits really well. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have to maneuver those pieces like a puzzle. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, each team has its own payroll flexibility. Each team uh, does their homework and uh, it, it's gotten, you know, quite a bit better now with all of the analytics and all of the, uh, different stats that they kind of compute and see what a player is going to be uh, at the present moment and then what they project that player is going to be in the future. But, uh, you know, I, I think Brian uh, has been through, uh, you know, different decades. I think he's been through, uh, you know, different ways that baseball has changed and he's had to adapt. And now he's using the analytics like uh, any other GM. And, you know, this year he's put together a, a heck of a ball club. And it just seems like, uh, you know, when they get on a roll, uh, they're a real balanced club. They, they got some strong pitching and, uh, you know, they get some timely hitting. And when, when your hitting is, is good in the big leagues, uh, it, it can carry you for a little bit. Stop me if you've heard this before. The Yankees are aging, overpriced. This is the year they're going to fall apart. They're going to have to retool. They keep doing the same thing. And it seems like year after year after year, for the longest time, people have said that. And every year, they pretty much, they seem to laugh and find a way. It's incredible. There's a reason why. And looking at the construction of this O2 Yankees, I think it'll help explain. With the Expos, you know, when I reflect back before the team moved to Washington, 
you know, they were jokingly called Major League Baseball's farm system, you know, but they were so good at scouting. Like they were back then what the Rays, let's say, are today, as far as being able to do it on a shoestring budget, have great scouting, bring in that young talent. But then when you can afford them, they have to be able to move on. And I think Cashman was smart to say, you know what, these are really great players. And a lot of these guys were, I mean, we'll go and talk about them. They were role players on that particular roster, but on any other team, pretty much, they would have been starters. So it's it's amazing to see the construction, how we put it together. But before we do that, look at this coaching staff. Wow. And I forgot about a couple of these names here, so we're going to just quickly go through them. Of course, Hall of Famer Joe Torre. Uh, what can you say about Joe Torre that hasn't been said as far as the greatness of Joe Torre? Yeah, I mean, Joe was put in a great spot, right? He, he managed clubs before the Yankees, and then he got the opportunity uh, with the boss to, to come in and, uh, and have a group of guys uh, that were very young, that were promising, that had very high ceilings. And, uh, you know, they panned out to what they thought they were going to be. Derek Jeter, Posada, Pettit, uh, Mariano Rivera, uh, you know, Bernie Williams, on and on. They, they, they had the uh, core players in their minor league systems, and that's when they added the pieces as they won. And they won four out of five World Series, right? I mean, you just can't deny that that club was a generational club in the nineties and just one that, that dominated because again, they had role players, they had superstars, they had hall of famers uh, and each person did their job uh, to the best of their abilities. And, and they were able to roll and do that. And, and Joe managed that club to the best of his abilities. And, you know, he had a great connection with those players. I mean, I can understand, and know that, you know, Derek Jeter and, and Joe are, are super close. Uh, I saw it for the three and a half years I was there, just, uh, you know, what kind of father figure that Joe was. Uh, you know, and Joe's from New York. I'm from New York. So we had that kind of connection. And because he, he was from Brooklyn, I was from Queens. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he was he was my manager. And, and uh, you know, he was one of those guys who just had a good feel of, uh, of a baseball game and, and, and made all the right choices for, a very long time. When I see Joe Torre, if he he has only two occupations in my mind, either baseball lifer or or a cast of the Sopranos or Goodfellas. Like he had that quiet, you know, um, confidence about him and power. You know, he just extenuated it. That's the impression I always had. Did you ever see this man yell? Did he ever lose his cool? Yeah, of course he loses his call. I, I think he he has an understanding, but he had veteran players, right? He he had players who understood themselves. He didn't have young guys who, uh, you know, would go off the rails or, um, you know, lose confidence. He had he had great players who understood understood who they were, what they were capable of doing, and never panicked. And and that's the, you know, that's the key right there. You know, I we've talked about this before. I played for some really really good managers and. And the ones that are really good, who are lifers or who have been in the game for a very long time, who understand that, have that cool, calm, collective, what I call a slow heartbeat uh, in pressure situations, whether you're on the field or, or, or managing. I mean, I had Bobby Cox uh, for a short time in Atlanta. Uh, obviously, Tony LaRusso was my first manager in the big leagues. And then, obviously, Joe Torre. And then I had Buck Showalter, who really exemplifies some of uh, – those qualities as well. And, and you see that with the New York Mets, uh, you know, these guys command respect. Uh, these guys uh, command excellence and the players understand that and know what the expectations are from their manager and the players try to do it to the best of their abilities. Is it going to work out all the time? No. And you're going to go through losing streaks, but uh, at the end of the day, when you put these players in the lineup and you put them on the field and they're ready to compete, um, you know, losing streaks don't last for very long. All those managers you describe, I can't see, no matter how frustrated a pitcher is to be taken out of a game to show them up, like, you know, throw your glove into the stands or throw the ball away kind of thing. When these guys come over to the mound, I think 99.99% of pitchers are going to put their head down, take the pat on the back, and if they got frustration, they'll go take it out in the clubhouse, I assume. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it. But at, at the end of the day, if a young player does do that uh, and is super competitive and and kind of gets out of line and shows up a manager, uh, I will promise you that a veteran guy on that club will grab that player uh, and the, the manager won't have to say a word to that player. The veteran guy will take care of it, pull him aside and explain to him uh, what the situation is, how to act, 
how to be professional, and how to go about your business. We all lose our cool at times uh, and are super competitive and want to be in that situation. But I think the veteran guys can, you know, give the younger guys from their experience, um, you know, how to act and, and how to be when a manager takes you out of the game. You only had 24 of those kind of guys on that roster. So there's plenty of guys to pick from now. Yeah, there was plenty. There was plenty. I mean, you, you've kind of run down all of them and we're going to talk about a few more, but veteran guys are uh, well worth the price to be in a clubhouse and be able to teach younger players how to respect the game and how to respect uh, the coaching staff. Well, sitting next to Joe with his 170 years of experience was Don Zimmer. <laughs> what do you, and Don Zimmer, again, another guy, what do you say about this guy that hasn't been said? Like guy was just absolutely incredible. What was he like as far as interaction wise? Did you get to interact with him much on the bench there? Yeah. You know, you, as a player, you, you talk to the coaches. I mean, back then uh, you definitely didn't talk to him as much as the, the present day player, but you know, you get to pull from their experiences uh, you know, ask them questions and, and try to learn from, from those guys. I mean, uh, you know, Zim was, was Joe's right-hand man, good friends, you know, uh, you know, buddies obviously on the field and off the field and, uh, they went through a lot together. So, um, you know, having Zim on the bench and, and just having that experience and, and Joe being able to lean on that, I think really helped, uh, you know, Joe and the whole staff, uh, as, as, as they went through games. My impression of Don, though, for for a veteran coach, let's call it veteran, has uh, lots of experience, but a guy who still kept it light. That was the impression. He was a fun guy, at least from the public perception. Was that uh, the fact in the clubhouse? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you never really saw much of the coaches roaming around the clubhouse. Again, different day, different time, uh, different game. So, uh, you know, they kept to themselves. The, the clubhouse was for the players. Uh, you know, the coaches room was for the coaches and they came out. Uh, and would talk, I mean, mostly on the field. Um, but whenever they would get in the clubhouse, if they needed to talk to you or say something to you, then uh, they'd pull you aside and, and have that conversation. But, uh, you know, most of the talking was done in the office or, or on the field. And a guy that you would have related to closely because he was the pitching coach at the time. I see his name come up often. Uh, he had probably about 90 years of pitching coaching experience uh, for his reputation. Mel Stottlemyre had a couple of kids that ended up playing ball. Uh, one guy was local here in Toronto, Ontario was Todd Stottlemyre. Todd yep. always posts a, uh, a warm tribute to his dad on father's day. I noticed that on social media, they were apparently very, very close. And, uh, and you got to pitch for him with him, uh, Mel Stottlemyre. Yeah. You know, Mel was great. Mel knew his stuff. Uh, he obviously he was around the game. He pitched for a very long time himself. Uh, he understood mechanics. He understood, uh, the mental part of the game. So having conversations with Mel, uh, you know, was just a, another blessing. It was just one of those things where, uh, you know, we can talk, we can talk pitching. We can just talk how things were going on the field, off the field and how life was. And, uh, you know, he was very relatable. He's, he's one of those guys who's easy going as well. Uh, didn't, didn't get mad very often and always tried to figure out what was best for the player that he was coaching. Uh, and, and it doesn't hurt that, you know, your starting staff is, Andy Pettit, Roger Clemens, El Duque, Mike Messina, and uh, David Wells. I mean, it, it's a pretty good five guys to send out there uh, once every fifth day when, when you need a starting pitcher. And you had some pretty great pitching coaches as well. You got Dave Duncan. That was also one of yep. your coaches. What, what's the difference between having a coach, let's say, like Duncan versus Stoudemire, as far as a pitcher goes? What are their styles um, like? I, I, I don't know. I think that I think they each have their own styles. They, they were both very calm. They were both very direct. Um, they both understood the game. They both have been with their managers for a very long time. So that kind of takes and pulls the respect and the trust that you have in them of what they're talking about. They've worked with great players their whole life and guys who are successful. So, uh, you know, those two guys, in, in my opinion, were, were very similar in – uh, attitude in communication skills, uh, in teaching, uh, and, and really knew the, knew the game of baseball and, and just had a lot of knowledge to uh, expel to the player that he was working with or, or to a pitching staff. I don't believe either of them were in the Hall of Fame, but if you're going to have pitching coaches in the Hall of Fame, I think those two would be near the top of the list as far as how highly regarded they were in the industry for so long. Yeah, you know, and then, I mean, I, I just can't forget the third guy, Leo Mazzoni. Um, 
again, had him for a very short time, but you know, he was uh, Bobby Cut. Yeah. The rocking chair on the bench and rocking chair, no <laughs> doubt. But again, when you have guys like Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz and Millwood, you know, it's easy to sit there and, and say, but it's the connection of those guys and keeping them motivated and pushing them and, and pushing them in the, in the spots to succeed and having the trust and communication. So he was another one, uh, you know, again, I've said this once I've, I'll say it again. I was very fortunate throughout my career to play with many great players, many hall of famers and have many, many uh, talented coaches to help guide me throughout my career and give me that opportunity to, to pitch for them. You know, one of the things about coaching, especially when you're given a strong roster, it feels that you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So if you have a team of all-stars, Hall of Famers, you're just expected to win the World Series. You're expected to win the Super Bowl. It's just a given. So if you do, then you're told, well, it was all the team. You didn't do much. You just sent out a roster every, every week. But if you lose, then you're not a very good manager and a good coach. So it's just funny how the games work this way. But every sport goes to show you at the end of the day, you can have such a collection of players, nothing's ever given as for a championship. You just never, ever know. So you do have to give the credit to the coaches. You know what? They're in there and they do make a difference. Yeah, they make a difference. But, you know, it's it's so subtle. Like it's behind the scenes, right? I mean, uh, the coaches who are humble, who don't look for the accolades, uh, those are the ones that usually succeed. Those are the ones that, uh, just go about their duty on a daily basis and do that. I mean, in the big leagues, whether it's in the major leagues or it's uh, a football coach, uh, the running the running joke in in the in baseball anyhow is if you're going to take a big league job, you get hired to get fired. Like that's just part of it because you can't fire the players if the team is not producing um, and and not fulfilling their talent level, then you know, the fall guy is going to be the manager, the pitching coach, the hitting coach. You know, those are the three that really take the brunt of it uh, when when guys aren't performing to the level of their capabilities. I mean, you, you saw it with, uh, you know, Joe Girardi. He, uh, they weren't, you know, they, the Phillies were not living up to the expectations that they had thought was going to be. And they got off to a bad start. And, you know, they had to make a change. And obviously, Joe Madden, they did the same thing with the Angels when he went through the 14-game losing streak. But at the end of the day, are those guys throwing the pitches? Are those guys hitting the baseball? No. But you can't fire all 26 guys on a major league roster. So there's always a shakeup or always something that a front office will try to do to uh, get the players or put a spark underneath them to get them to play what they feel like is uh, up to their capabilities. You read my mind. Those are the two names I wanted to say so badly and thinking in my head because also the game today in the year 2022 versus 1980, it was a lot easier to say, you're a star player, too bad, you're out of here, we're going to show you who's boss. I think with the economics of the game and where the game's changed, it's, it seems like they're a lot quicker in all sports to kind of coach quicker than they are to get rid of a star player. It's just it's just a different time. It's a different complexity. And we talked about this in a different episode where, you know, agents get involved as well, advocating for their clients. So it's, it's so much politics that go on in the background. So we're not going to go there. But the last two coaches, which is interesting, uh, New York lifers. You like that segue, by the way. Uh, we got good friend Lima Zilli and Willie Randolph. You know, guys that have seemingly been in coaching forever, played forever. Willie coached, uh, was a major league manager, to have that kind of experience as well around the clubhouse, just, it was a abundance of riches. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I watched Lee and Willie, both their careers when, you know, Lee was with the Mets and uh, Willie's with the Yankees in the eighties. I, I got to watch them on TV and play with them and ask them questions. Uh, very knowledgeable men, guys who understand the game and, uh, understand how to coach. Uh, and I, I think that's the most important thing. Like, yeah, it's great to have experience and names, but if you can't coach, you can't coach. And, uh, you know, your job as a coach is to make the players better, get them to understand the game, uh, learn the game uh, at a more rapid pace and uh, put them in positions to succeed. So if you're a good coach, you're a good coach. Some, some great players 
aren't very good coaches. And that's not a knock on anybody who's coached who has a tremendous amount of experience in the game. But sometimes guys just know how to do it and maybe not know how to explain it or get it across to a different player because that player was so talented. But Willie and Lee, they were both, you know, I think seen as winners during their playing days, which transpired well into coaching. Not a coincidence that the Blue Jays in 89 go and get Lee Mazzilli, get Mookie Wilson, get a winning attitude and then go on to win two World Series, you know, shortly after that. Uh, I, I think it sets that, what they say, that veteran presence, you know, the clubhouse presence. I think both of them knew it as players and brought it into coaching. Willie Randolph had a very good reputation, I think, as far as winning the coaching ranks. Didn't have as much success as a big league manager, but as a coach, uh, everything I ever read, read of him or people talked of him always had a lot of respect. Yeah, I mean, they command respect, right? I mean, they're winners. That's it's what they've done. Uh, and at the end of the day, you have to teach a guy how to win. I mean, uh, it's, it's kind of just trickling down through the minor leagues, like going through the process and understanding the game and doing that. But you still have to teach these young guys how to play the game of baseball and learn how to win, uh, even if you're going through the process. I mean, there's a balance to both because when the guy gets to the big leagues, if he's not producing and he doesn't know how to win, they're probably going to get rid of him. And if you've never teach that guy what winning baseball is, uh, then I think you're doing a detriment to the player. So now we know the pitching background of this Yankees squad. We know the coaching staff. Let's go into the position players again, Hall of Famers, near Hall of Famers, Montreal Expos. The first guy actually blew me away because I could have sworn that this guy actually wasn't a Hall of Fame. I had to go back and look, and I thought to myself, what? He's not a Hall of Fame? The catcher, George Jorge Posada. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, a battery mate of mine, obviously, uh, coming out of the bullpen, uh, was no more as an offensive threat than his defensive abilities, but, uh, you know, held his own behind the plate. He's got... Uh, you know, he had a lot of knowledge. Obviously, he's <laughs> been part of World Series after World Series. So when you talk to him, he has a real good understanding of the game and, uh, you know, uh, came to play every day. I, I can say that about Jorge is, uh, you know, he loved the game of baseball. And, uh, you know, when he came to the park, he was ready to play. He was ready to catch. And uh, he took pride in that. And, you know, again, great reputation in baseball, very highly considered. May have been, you know, maybe if he was playing on a different team, perhaps, maybe he would be in the Hall of Fame today. It's one of those things that you're kind of cursed when you're playing with that many Hall of Famers or saying, well, we can't put the whole team in the Hall of Fame, so to speak. But when I bet back and looked at his numbers and what the man produced, I think he needed a better shot at it. I think that he showed enough. I think considering other people that are in there, considering his position as well, it's a very difficult position. And for the amount of years he caught, I think he should have gotten a little more love from the writers. Yeah, you know, I mean, I try to stay out of that. I mean, the writers are the ones who are, uh, you know, going to compare the numbers and put the numbers together and, you know, dissect every little thing uh, that he did uh, amongst the players that are already in the Hall of Fame. But again, at the end of the day, the Baseball Hall of Fame is a very small class. It's, very, it's a small percentage of Major League Baseball players who are actually in the Hall of Fame, and uh, it's very hard to get into. So you have to pr produce for a decade or more, and, uh, you know, you got to stay healthy. And I think that's uh, the number one thing that the writers look at. I think it's the most difficult Hall of, Hall of Fame out of all the sports by far. I think it's very respected for that reason. And it's something that you, you bring in less than more, which means some candidates may not end up making it. But there's a reason why it's the Hall of Fame and not the Hall of Very Good. Backing him up from the Montreal Expos, candidate number one, Chris Widger. Yeah, how about that? Uh, I haven't heard that name in a long time. But, uh, you know, Chris was Chris. I mean, he's a backup catcher who would expel Jorge when he needed a day off and uh, or double headers. Um, again, just one of those guys who is a piece to the puzzle, right? You, you put him in there. And you give him the, you know, amount of bats that he needs and you pair him up with certain pitchers that he calls a good game with. And uh, you kind of just you kind of just ride with that. And, and again, a piece of the puzzle uh, to a Yankee team that was very successful. Again, a guy that I would say any other team or very close to it, at least half the teams, he would have been a starter, but uh, embarrassment of riches. 
Uh, one of your buddies comes up next, number 25 from the Oakland A's, Jason Giambi. Yeah, we signed the same year, right? We came in at the same time. Um, he's he's different cat, man. Like he's just one of these guys that comes to the ballpark uh, and, you know, is old school, puts on the uniform, goes out and takes BP, you know, comes in the clubhouse, grabs a bite to eat, uh, you know, obviously works out and keeps himself in good shape. And it's just a very talented guy uh, throughout his career who's able to hit a baseball very well and, uh, you know, did it for a very long time and, uh, you know, made himself better at first base. I mean, you know, obviously he's a big guy, doesn't move real well, but uh, is a guy who's an offensive powerhouse, swings the bat and, uh, you know, defensively uh, was adequate to be able to play first base and, uh, you know, get the job done. Modern day Belushi, perhaps, uh, what I'm thinking from the movie, uh, animal house, but, uh, who <laughs> liked to have more fun, Jambi or David Wells? Oof! wow. Okay. You are throwing, yeah, that's a tough one. I think they are both on an even playing field right there. I think both really love the limelight of New York. I think they really loved, uh, you know, um, going out and, and having a good time. And then, coming to the ballpark, putting on that Yankee uniform and, and producing for the fans. Uh, you know, I, I think that's, you know, each individual is a little bit different. And, uh, you know, these guys were, were two special guys that were, were able to do, uh, you know, both things. Really, there's a lot of people who come to New York. And if you go out a night or two a week, it'll chew you up and spit you out and, uh, and it'll, it'll hurt your performance. But, uh, these guys, it, it never hurt their performance and, and they were both able to handle, uh, you know, what they wanted to do on and off the field. To me, they're like the baseball version of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. You know, they were just born to play in New York. Like this was made for them. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, there's people who can play in New York and there's people who can't play in New York. And I've seen plenty of guys who signed with the New York Yankees or the New York Mets and the city and the fans overwhelms them because they put so much pressure on themselves to perform at a high level. Uh, and for some reason that they, they just don't. So at the end of the day, uh, New York is a very tough city to play in. Um, and, you know, like, like some others, but some people can, some people can handle the pressure of New York and, and some people just cannot. I can tell you, I told you in a previous episode, going to a Red Sox Yankee game during the regular season in New York city, watching the Red Sox and the Yankees, it's was an atmosphere, like a playoff atmosphere. It literally felt like as you're going into the stadium, you're going into the world series. And this is a regular season game had nothing on the line whatsoever. That's the kind of atmosphere you're going into. Unbelievable. Like nothing I've ever seen before. Every game is like that. When you play the Boston Red Sox, the Red Sox fans come to Yankee Stadium. The Yankee fans go to Boston. Uh, it's a huge rivalry. I mean, it started obviously back in the day. I mean, and then it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And then, you know, you had the Bucky Den home run. Uh, and I'm sure it goes way further back than, than that. But, uh, you know, with my lifetime, the Bucky Den home run. And then obviously, you know, you, you have... Uh, you know, playoffs uh, against each other, the Aaron Boone home run, you know, the fight with A-Rod and Veritech. Like, there's so many different variables to, to those two teams. And uh, when a rivalry is born, a rivalry is born, no matter what sport it's in. Well, we're talking about Chris Widger, name from the past. How about this one? We have not heard this one in a while. And this was a cannot miss guy. 57, Drew Henson. I was going to say Hansen, but Henson, H-E-N. What yeah. when that guy came up, wow, the uh, he was highly touted, uh, Yankee born, like wow, you know, everybody was sure. Uh, he what he did make that roster. Uh, did you have much interaction with Drew? No, not much interaction. I mean, up and down, up and down, right? I mean, he's very, very similar to uh, a Chris Winky, right? That uh, Toronto drafted, uh, who played football, played hockey in high school, and then and obviously played baseball and was very good at all three, uh, obviously played Chris Winkie played in the NFL. So, uh, you know, yeah, uh, drew highly touted prospect. I mean, you, you expect those guys to do well, anybody who's drafted, you know, very high and, and given accolades, you want them to do well. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And, uh, you know, 
guys move on and, and do what's best for them. But, uh, you know, the, he had opportunities and uh, obviously it just didn't work out as well as, as people had thought. No, and it's, it's that's where it goes to show you can't miss. You never, ever know. It's just things take their way. Hello, Joe Charbonneau. Uh, next guy. I spent 20 minutes watching a video about this guy. Number two, Derek Jeter. Uh, one of the videos on YouTube, and they do a feature on different players. And this one was about the most overrated player in baseball. And I watched this thing for 20 minutes, and I said, yeah, no, sorry. Don't agree. They gave all their arguments. Nope. Every, it's amazing because, you know, as far as on the upper echelon of Hall of Famers, teammates, the captain, you know, I, I watched the man, you played with him, you know, just unbelievable as far as everything the man came to work, worked hard, should have been a Houston Astro, actually. It's funny, if you go back and read the stories that due to uh, money, and this was pennies on the dollar at the time even, Derek Jeter should have been an Astro, but he came to the Yankees, Hall of Famer, Derek Jeterland. Yeah, pretty impressive guy overall, right? I mean, pretty impressive career. Uh, you know, just a guy who was meant to be in New York. That's how I look at it. Uh, he was meant to be a Yankee. He was meant to be a, a captain of the New York Yankees. And, you know, he came up in every big spot possible, right? And you know, I would say delivered in a majority of those uh, spots. So, uh, you know, there's, there's not much, I mean, I could go on forever about, you know, who he is, what a tremendous uh, teammate, uh, a presence in the clubhouse, uh, a guy who handles himself on and off the field with class, um, goes about his business, embraces teammates, uh, and plays hard on the field. Like, uh, that's all you ask from a player. And if you can have uh, a, a full roster of those guys, you're going to win a lot of games. I mean, super talented. Um, and, and the work ethic is second to none. So, you know, um, there's different things that drive different guys. And, uh, you know, there was something that, you know, drove him. He always wanted to be a Yankee. And when he was a Yankee, he wanted to be a great Yankee. And, uh, you know, whether he willed himself to do that or it just, uh, it just transpired, uh, you know, and, 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 God touches you and, and puts you in that position. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a special thing to watch. And I'm just very blessed that I was able to uh, spend a few years and get to know him and watch him play the game of baseball because you can pass those lessons down to, uh, you know, obviously my son or uh, if all the baseball fans are out there, you can go back and, you know, you know, tell them this is a guy that amplifies and, uh, understands the game of baseball and, and this is how it should be played. Like Michael Jordan in basketball, it's Derek Jeter in baseball. To me, he's the George Clooney of baseball, you know, in a way, as far as those Hollywood good looks, as far as the way he speaks, as far as just the leadership. He has a good game, bad game. He was always in front of the media. Team's playing well, team's not playing so well. He was the captain. He was always first and foremost, foremost in front of the cameras and protecting his teammates saying the right stuff. He, he seemed that he really cared about it. The team was always first. He was accountable. I mean, that's what it comes down to. When you're accountable and you can stand up there and say, hey, I didn't have my best day today and, uh, you know, I'm going to continue to work and get better, then that, that's, all, that's all you look for. I mean, that, that's a leader, right? I mean, guys who want to lead uh, will, 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 will take the heat. Um, you know, they'll, they'll take the good times with the bad times, but, uh you know, those, those are the guys that you want to, you know, go to battle with, so to speak, uh, on a daily basis and, and have them at the primary position of shortstop. The next guy is what I call a fantasy baseball team killer. Uh, one year when I won my league, I did something totally different. All I did was I did the charting over the last three years. I took all the hitters that took the most amount of walks and I took the pitchers that give up the least amount of walks. When you talk about home runs and walks, Nick Johnson former Expo, of course. And man, that guy has killed a few fantasy baseball teams in his day due to injuries, but so much talent. Yeah, absolutely. But he's, he's another guy who's just a piece of that puzzle, right? I mean, he's a guy you bring in, uh, another left-handed bat at Yankee Stadium. Uh, great place to hit if you're a left-hander. Very talented, could play first base. Uh, and, and, and the expectations maybe were higher. Uh, for him um, than maybe what he was able to, you know, put out there. But, you know, he did 
he did what he needed to do. And uh, he was a, a big part of that club, especially in 2002, uh, getting to the playoffs and, and doing that and had, had, had some great years. A very, very talented hitter that, uh, you know, maybe could get more of, but uh, a solid baseball player and, and one that fit in great. So it, it, watching him as much as I did, I think he played really hard. I think that resulted in a lot of injuries. He could have played it maybe safer, but that wasn't his style. He put everything out on the field. He abused his body, really respected the guy on Montreal. But, you know, coming from Montreal where you're the top guy or the top three guys and you come to New York, different story now. Like you said, role player, rest the body a little more, great fit. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like you said, injuries played a big part in why maybe he didn't, uh, you know, get to the expectation level that everybody thought he could, but, uh, you know, played hard and, uh, was, was a great teammate. Next guy, hall of famer, near hall of famer, expo, Washington nationals, Alfonso Soriano. Like this, this list just keeps going and going. Yeah. Again, a tremendous player. I mean, obviously played all over the field, played second, played some outfield, big power, uh, you know, had great years in New York and, and really carried that team offensively for a little bit, uh, you know, so, you know, adapted to the different positions that uh, Joe wanted him to play. And, uh, you know, but he was an offensive threat and, and that's what uh, obviously everybody looked at him as. And a big fan favorite, just a big fan favorite. People who love the Yankees, loved Soriano. And they, they were really sad to see him go, but that's part of baseball. Yeah, it always is part of baseball, right? You you wish you can keep every player that comes through your system or that you uh, bring in that does well. Um, but, you know, the way the game is structured with free agency and then, you know, the amount of payroll that you're allowed to have. And, you know, when you have all these great players on one team, there's only so much money you can spend uh, and put that product on the field. And, you know, he was just one of those guys that, uh, you know, maybe – um, at the time, obviously, uh, Robinson Cano was coming. So, you know, there's your other guy who you can replace with a smaller salary and maybe get the same type of production if that's what you're looking for. And uh, that's just the way the game is. It's, it's like any other business. It's like a quarterback in football or a goalie in hockey. I mean, when your time's up in a certain spot, your time's up, and then you just need to move on. The next guy in the infield before we get to the outfield, again, it- it's one of those things you got to remember that this guy was actually on the roster at the time. Uh, third base, Robin Ventura, one of the few guys to play on the Yankees and the Mets, best known for getting walloped by Nolan Ryan. That's going to stay with him for the rest of his life. I could tell you going around Cooperstown and going to the memorabilia shops, there's pictures of that everywhere. But, you know, when you take that aside, again, a gritty, hardworking baseball lifer. Yeah, I would say definitely a, a, a gritty guy. You know, on the pitching staff, I have like uh, compare him to like a, a Mucina, a very quiet guy who goes about his business, who's very professional, comes to the game, comes to the game or comes to the field to play the game on a daily basis, plays the game hard, understands who he is, understands where he fits in on a lineup, uh, and another left-handed hitter that can just have tremendous bat-to-ball abilities and and. Uh, you know, put the ball in play and uh, a quality defensive third baseman. Just outstanding. You know, any, any team would love to have that guy, just a pro 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 in the outfield. Last I looked, as far as I know, there's three outfielders. That's how the game is played. But apparently this team wanted to have three sets of outfielders just in case. So going one by one, look at these names, Kareem Garcia, man. I love watching that guy play. It was a huge part of Mexico in the world baseball classic uh didn't do as much in, in his mlb i mean he, he bounced around a little bit had nice little stats really known as a world baseball classic guy uh on, in new york uh much interaction with kareem yeah not much interaction but uh a good teammate good strong arm uh you know played hard and uh you know got into got into stretches where he hit the ball great right and then got into stretches where he wasn't as good as as, as he was when when he was hot but uh again just, you know, when, when you're on a team, you interact with everybody, but sometimes you just don't hang out with everybody and get sure. to know them as personal as some of the other guys who you connect with. But just in this, out, like the way we went through the pitching staff, you look at this outfield, it's just absolutely obscene. A guy who was highly touted back with the Dodgers, another Cam Miss guy, had a nice little career for himself, Rule Mondesi was on this team. 
Yeah, Raul was great. I mean, obviously, uh, the Jays too, right? I mean, played part of his career there. But uh, yeah, I mean, he has a son now that uh, is is with the Royals who who plays as well, who's an infielder. But, uh, you know, super talented guy, like, uh, like five to a player with power and arm and speed and uh, you know, was, was a good teammate. And again, another piece of the puzzle that just fits correctly when you have to give some of your regulars a day off and he can, uh, and he can fit in. A guy who did play on the Expos. I did double check on this. Juan Rivera was there. Yeah. Juan Rivera. I mean, uh, not again, not much interaction, uh, with, with the outfielders, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, again, another piece of the puzzle. Uh, one of these guys who is, you know, probably towards the bottom of the roster, um, but uh, was, was a good fit and played the game hard and came to play the game every day. A guy that had, uh, you know, his little spurt and another chemist guy that had, you know, from the start of his career, Shane Spencer. He seemed like he was around forever on the Yankees. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and he had a tremendous, I believe it was a 98 playoff that really, uh, or 99 playoff that really carried them into where they needed to be and got some big hits for them, for them down the stretch. So, uh, yeah, Shane, great guy, hard player. Uh, again, another piece of the puzzle where you can kind of interchange him in the outfield and play a couple different positions and then lean on him, uh, as a pinch hitter late in the game to, to come up with a big at bat. He's like a guy like Kevin Moss, you know, you just expect that Kevin Moss was on the Yankees for, for so many years. He wasn't, but you have that one little stretch and they remember it for generations to come. You know, I can never forget that he was going to unseat Don Mattingly. And, you know, when it's fun when you have those little stretches on the Yankees and you're tearing up baseball, man, they love you. Oh uh, yeah. The, the fans are incredible. They know the game of baseball really well. Uh, they understand the game and, and, and they'll ride you when, when you're hot and, and they'll just take you in and put you under their wing. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see that guys get taken in by, by the fans and uh, you know, are, are respected by the fans. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, when, when you're not doing as well, the, the Yankee fans will boo you and they'll let you know. And, and that's part of the game. So you have to take the good with the bad and uh you know, I think every guy on this roster that Brian Cashman brought in, uh, he understood that uh, they would be able to do that. Believe it or not, we're not even close to being done on this outfield. It's It just keeps going and going, you know. But the difference in them and the Philadelphia fans, at least they don't throw batteries at people, you know, and like appliances. So that's another story. Yeah, well, yeah, no doubt. That's Joe Girardi. Marcus Thames was on this team. Yeah, Marcus, now he's hitting coach in the big leagues. Um, you know, uh, again, another piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, he's an interchangeable piece. If a guy gets hurt and can go in there and fill in and do what he needs to do. Um, you know, I, I one thing I remember is well, uh, Marcus, I don't know if it was his first whole big league home run or his first at bat. It was, I believe it was off Randy Johnson. So uh, I would have to go look that up. But that's a, a memory that I remember that, he had in that bat off of Randy and I believe he took him deep. So it was a special moment for him. I'm sure he hasn't forgotten it. You know, some teams have a fourth outfielder. They had four A, four B, four C, four D and four E. <laughs> Keeping with our expo quota here, John Vanderwall found his way there. Yes. And Rondell White, John Vanderwall, uh, also an expo lifer that you wouldn't have thought would be on the Yankees. He was there. And again, another guy just fits in the puzzle, right? Yeah, both those guys, uh, you know, they came in the same year as Jason Giambi and myself. I remember going to the to the stadium and uh, taking pictures with them and being on the field with them and talking with them uh, about joining the ball club in 2002. So, uh, again, the Yankees like to create depth. You know, they have a lot of money. They have the resources that they can go out and pay these players to sit on the bench when they might be starters on another team, uh, but are – role players on who, what the Yankees, you know, look like. So um, for them to be able to bring these guys in, pay them the type of money that they were paying them to be part of a club uh, and, and part of something that uh, you know what you're going to be when you come there and sign uh, is it, special. And, and, and these guys understood that it was, uh, you know, it, it took some time to mesh because when you have a team like that and you have free agents coming in and out, you always wonder if you're going to be able to, you know, uh, 
you know, mesh and, and be able to have that uh, camaraderie, uh, whether it's in the clubhouse or on the field. And, uh, you know, every time we've had brought somebody in with the Yankees, it felt like they just kind of fit in perfectly with what their role was going to be. Well, Rondell White, I mean, on, in his Expos days, like he was many tool player, very exciting to watch, very consistent. Again, injuries played a little bit of a part there, but just yeah. such, such a great player. And again, just embarrassment of riches. Uh, Gerald Williams, I would say, you know, it's funny. They, they always said like, wow, the Williams brothers, they were not actually brothers, but because they were there for so long, you know, you're so used to the Williamses and you related them to the Yankees. Gerald was a nice uh, role player, I would say. Bernie, you know, again, he, Posada, Pettit, you know, Jeter, guys that you just associate with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, both those guys. You said uh, Gerald's a role player, and but Bernie, Bernie's Bernie, right? I mean, Bernie was one of those guys who uh, just solidified center field, uh, came to play every day, uh, you know, hitting from both sides of the plate, has power, can chase balls down, uh, and overall was a special player. You know, he was going to become a free agent, I think, uh, possibly go to Boston, and then the boss stepped in and 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 paid him handsomely and he stayed with the Yankees and 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 was a Yankee right so uh you know he's an eclectic guy he played guitar and uh you know still does to this day and is very good at it so it's uh it's one of those guys who again is you know a Yankee when you look at those late 90s and early 2000 teams that you just associate with uh great teams and and a great organization when I think of Bernie, again, it's one of those guys I feel like played forever, was on the cusp there just for whatever, you know, life takes you. It's, it's, it's funny, but, you know, it's a lot of guys, you know, fall into this trap, you know, unless you played 20 years, got your 20 to 30 home runs a year, whatever the, the stats are, it's just you're that close Hall of Fame wise. Bernie did not make it, but a lot of Yankees fans do clamor for him. Rumor has it that you and him drew straws. And one of you is going to go be the merengue uh, love song singer. And the other one was going to be the coach. And you were that close to taking your guitar, playing songs, true or false. I think you have me mixed up with somebody else. <laughs> he's quite good, though. I don't know if you've heard his stuff, Oh, he's but... great. He's gr- Bernie's great. Bernie is yeah. super talented musically. Uh, and I'm just completely on the other spectrum of that. I can't play a musical instrument. I can't sing. I can't even do karaoke. So like, I just stay away from that genre. I stay away from that arena and I just kind of go about my business. And if I'm ever at a place like that, I'll just sit at the table, watch people who know how to do it and have my, uh, you know, alcoholic cocktail. Well, you know, they say they have like the uh, right side, left side of the brain, whatever the spectrum is. I could tell you, I can't even draw a straight line. Anything I've ever tried doing clay sculptures, it's just a bear. Maybe that's part of the reason why you and I bond so well that uh, we have certain gifts and other stuff we embrace that we do not, but Bernie did. And uh, you know what? I went on to have a second career and doing quite well. It's all the power to him. Yeah, I have a hard time even drawing a stick figure. So there we go. So maybe we'll get somebody else to draw for us when we play Hangman one day. There you go. On that note, we're going to pause here and then we're going to head to the next chapter of the chosen journey with Steve Garcia.